0: first watch
1: hello and welcome to an all-new very holy episode of the first watch podcast i'm zach i'm here with cole how are you
2: I'm feeling a little sinful today. How about you?
1: Oh, are you? Today is (laughs) Easter Sunday. We are recording on the holiday and talking about the latest film, a 2022 con release by Hilnir Palmason, which is an Icelandic and Danish film called Godland. And it is the centerpiece of a larger discussion that we're going to be having today about some films that center on the holidays that are going on right now, which are Easter, Passover.
2: The problem with the holidays is that if I step anywhere inside a church, I'm going to burst into flames. But...
1: <laughs> We're going to do our best to keep this one above the belt sacrilegious wise, but no promises <laughs> by the time we get to the main film of the day. <laughs> Even before we get started with anything, I want to say we are sensitive to the fact that probably Godland is not available everywhere for everyone right now. And we will be diligent to note the part of our discussion where we go into spoiler territory with that film. And in addition, we have a full list of things to talk about today, besides just that, that are spoiler-free for this episode. Everybody else right now is out there celebrating Nintendo properties and (laughs) Nike. It's a big, big time for brands, and we're here to talk about the Lord.
2: (laughs) Just a little holiness in such a soulless (laughs) corporate hellscape. (laughs) Which is rich coming out of my mouth, but you know, whatever. So I did see Tetris. I have nothing to say about that movie, just <laughs> big old chunk of nothing.
1: I'll go ahead and shout one thing out there. There is a 59 and a half minute YouTube video that you can look up called The Story of Tetris by Gaming Historian. And I genuinely recommend that if you have any sort of interest in video game history or in Tetris, or even if you don't think that you have much interest in those things, that's a great breakdown of the story of the man who invented the game, which I thought that this movie with the uh Rocket Man
2: Saren Edgenson.
1: Yeah, Mr. Kingsman, the Secret Service. I thought that it was gonna be about him, because it's an interesting story and it's not. It's about like the guy who sold the rights of Tetris to like every developer in Europe and America and put it out on PC and Nintendo, blah, 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 blah. Who fucking yeah. cares?
2: Yada yada yada, he caused the downfall of the Soviet Union or whatever. <laughs> This has been like a crowded couple of weeks of movies based on things that I don't know the history about, don't really know the details about, so I just sit there kind of confused. like I had no idea what was happening during Tetris, I had no idea what was going on during Dungeons and Dragons, and Air is certainly no exception, although it might be the most entertaining of the bunch.
1: Viola Davis will do that for you.
2: Oh, she's so good in this. The cast is really what sells it, but Air is based off of the deal that was struck in the mid-1980s between Michael Jordan and Nike for his shoe line, Air Jordan. A groundbreaking part of the deal was that he would receive a portion of the sales of each shoe in the line, which is something that had never been done before. So this movie is from the perspective of Sonny Vaccaro, the Nike employee who engineered the entire deal. He's played by Matt Damon, and then the rest of the cast is filled up by Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, Chris Messina, Chris Tucker... It's got this problem where, you know, the cast is doing really well and they all have great lines and it is a very funny movie, but the whole thing feels dramatically inert because like we know, oh yeah, of course he's going to sign with Nike. He's not going to sign with Converse. He's not going to sign with Adidas. So it just can't find a way to get over that hill and make it feel genuinely tense as they work out this deal. So it just kind of feels like a glorified Wikipedia article.
1: Maybe something that relates to the Christ and Easter stuff. It's like, ha, ha, how do you pronounce that word? Is it hagiography giography ha-geo- the, the one that means writing about saints. Type of biopic where they're just like way up your ass of the subject.
2: Hagiography, I think.
1: I think that might be right. It's one of those words I've <laughs> only seen written or only written myself as opposed to saying a lot. But it's something that plagues biopics. They almost all have like that force of inevitability. Like, there'll Mm -hmm. be, like, the guy that's trying to block the path of progress, and you're like, well, he's not going to win, but how are they going to overcome him, whatever. To me, it just sort of seems like a weird point of focus to be on the business end of it, as opposed to from the perspective of the Jordan family, or something more in line with that. Although those have their own problems, like King Richard and stuff.
2: Although, at the very least, it would have been a lot more interesting than whatever this is.
1: In terms of recommending the YouTube video, there's a 30 for 30 documentary, which you can also watch on YouTube. 30 for 30 is a series by ESPN of documentary films that came out, 2010s type range. There's one called Soul Man, which is about Sonny Vaccaro, same guy. And it's a little bit more critical of the whole relationship between Nike and the athletes and like Mm -hmm. how that has progressed from the 1980s all the way up to 2015.
2: Yeah, if you're looking for an adult drama, I would definitely recommend this just because it seems to be so rare nowadays. Like, I went to go see it last night, pretty packed audience. Oh my god, the crowds in that AMC were insane. I have not seen anything like that mm. since No Way Home maybe.
1: Wow. Thank you Tom Cruise.
2: <laughs> Tragically not for this movie. Everyone and their mother was, you know, crowding into the IMAX <laughs> to go see Mario instead. So,
1: the other Nintendo property movie
2: destroying all kinds of records
1: i was sort of lamenting that shazam 2 kicked john wick 4 out of dolby and imax and then like mario came and just swept that shit right off the board it's kind of crazy when you pull up the showtimes it's just like a brick yeah big set of mario bricks with question marks and mushrooms and fire flowers i'm sure i still haven't seen it
2: i'll wait until it's streaming and then i can watch it while i fold laundry which is uh, what most Illumination films deserve.
1: My friend who saw it texted me and said that it was genetically engineered in a lab to be as milk toast and inoffensive as possible. It's kind of interesting in terms of like the IP wars, how video games are now starting to become a bigger part of where studios are looking to draw from for oh, yeah. adaptations and movies. Oh, yeah. And particularly, I think there's this inflection point of We'll call it the Sonic redesign, where suddenly the importance kind of shifted from you know the Mario movie of the 80s, where it has absolutely fuck all, nothing to do with that game, and is like more of an experiment by the people who made Max Headroom, to now it's like fucking reference palooza, everything is like by the letter of the lore, because that's how D&D is too. Yeah, There was the D&D of the 2000s it was like random bullshit, and now this new one is like neck deep in the glossary of official terms.
2: If there's not a million Easter eggs in your movie, then all the fans are going to get upset and burn down the theater.
1: Everything has to check out with Wikipedia.
2: <laughs> ew. <laughs> ew, ew, ew.
1: Real website. <laughs> that's Disgusting. <the> thing. <laughs> the
2: fans need to be stopped.
1: Movies for people who love character bio wiki pages is how someone once described Eternals to me, and it's been <laughs> that, in my mind ever that, since.
2: That's a uh, brutally accurate description of that movie.
1: So apart from all these corporate brand name capitalist celebrations, have you seen anything else lately?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, it's been like a flood of new releases here in the past two weeks, and then, of course, in the weeks coming up, one movie that would accidentally make anyone actually pro-capitalist is one that I referenced at the very end of our John Wick episode, but I wanted to bring it up just a little (laughs) bit more in the spotlight because I really just... (laughs) hate it hate it hate it and feel the need to crucify it today (laughs) is the horror shit show winnie the pooh blood and honey when the trailer for this released back in december i think it was there was a big old splash because winnie the pooh was moving out of the public domain and specifically the novel not the disney film like all of disney's stuff is still under copyright but Apparently, the only thing you can do when the public domain ends is to take whatever property that is and turn it into a horror movie, which is so horribly uncreative.
1: It feels like we had a bunch of Santa ones already. Yeah. What was the other? We had a Grinch? Did they do a Grinch?
2: Yeah, there was a Grinch one that was released for free because that's still under copyright.
1: got it. Okay. That was like a fan film or a parody.
2: Yeah, more or less. But this one specifically is about Pooh, Piglet, Owl eeyore and rabbit who are not stuffed animals but like humanoid animalistic like demons
1: kind of like frank the rabbit donnie darko or some shit like that
2: yeah basically (laughs) and they get abandoned by christopher robin when he goes off to college and because he had been feeding them they almost starve to death until the rest of them decide to eat eeyore and that turns them into crazy cannibal killers and you'd think that the movie would maybe do something interesting because Christopher Robin actually comes back to show them off to his fiance. But instead, the movie decides to focus on a bunch of half naked women running around screaming as they get killed. It's a real piece of shit.
1: Yeah, just low effort trash. And then we painted this thing over it so that you would be enticed into watching it. Cause, like, woohoo, evil Winnie the Pooh.
2: Yeah, that's it.
1: <laughs> Magical.
2: No effort, no creativity, empty vacuum.
1: You know, horror is that eternal genre where something with no budget, like Terrifier 2 or Skinamarink, Rank, mm-hmm. can go and perform, will be successful. So I think that's kind of where some of that comes from, is that you can just sort of put in no effort and have a DVD and you sell that DVD to people.
2: Yeah, low risk, high reward. Also, in terms of new releases, I caught up with showing up in the new mm-hmm. Kelly Reichardt film, which I'm sure we'll talk about at a later time. Because mm-hmm. right now, I think it's just in New York and LA.
1: Yeah, that's what it looked like. I think we're getting it next week, is what I saw. Okay, So I will definitely be seeing that, and we will definitely have to be talking about that, because Kelly Reichardt is one of our mutual favorite working directors. Mm -hmm. What did you think about it?
2: I loved it a lot. I thought it was very smart, sweet, funny, a little sad, but it has this really great depiction of making art, and what does it mean to make art, and put it out there in the world, and interacting with other artists. Great cat movie,
1: too. Nice. Very good. (laughs) We're talking about a great dog movie today, so we don't always get as many great cat movies. we got to appreciate them when they come around. Yeah. What did you think about Hong Chao?
2: She was so good in that. She was really, really great.
1: I'm really looking forward to seeing her. I really like her. I think that she's great, and she's been in some movies that I think are good, some that I thought were not so good, and I'm just kind of...
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The idea of pairing her with one of my favorite directors is like, yeah,
2: okay. Oh yeah, she knocks it out of the park.
1: Glad to hear it. Anything else for you?
2: A couple of other films that I caught up with new romantic comedy Ride Lane on mm. Hulu, which was really cute, really visually inventive for a rom com, which is super rare. Also caught up with Walk Up, the new film from Hong Sings too 2. Um, very <laughs> <Another> lovely. <one. laughs> yeah. Every three to five business days with this guy, (laughs) I swear to God.
1: I still haven't even seen the novelist's film yet. You should, it's really good.
2: Uh, This one is not as good, but it is. It's a special little gem. And then the other big-ish thing that I caught up with recently is another horror film. Part of that whole skin-em-a-ring, out-waters, experimental wave that's going on at the moment. Ennisman?
1: I just saw that last night.
2: Uh, what you think?
1: Um... I think if you asked me that question five minutes into the movie, I would have been like, this fucking rocks. Because it kicks off and it's got this 16 millimeter cinematography and this sound that just feels like it fucking crawled its way out of England in 1972. And then as it wears on over the next 85 minutes, I just kind of lost interest in it. Yeah. Even though it has strong atmosphere, it just didn't really hold me. And I don't know, maybe that's kind of a personal bug. What did you think about it?
2: I kind of got fed up with it about a half hour in. The film's about this woman who's living on a remote island that's been abandoned as she's studying some local flowers and jotting them down, you know, for like when they bloom or like if a mold appears on them or something. And it's her repetitive actions over the course of the day, making tea, making sure she has enough petrol to light the stove, checking out the ruins in the area, etc. So it's a very repetition-based film. And unfortunately, it doesn't really go anywhere with what it shows. There's like hints of supernatural activity and like stuff that happened to her in the past or might have happened.
1: Kind of just feels like a generic descent into madness.
2: Mm-hmm. Without like any sort of stability for the madness yeah. to build off of.
1: There's no conventional dramaturgy, so you can't get into that repulsion where you're really admiring Deneuve's characterization and performance and everything. Yeah. The closest I got for this is like, it seems to be about fungus. There's like mushrooms that are growing, you know? It's interesting. I really think it would have been a good to great short film yeah. if this were like, sub 10 minutes particularly mm-hmm. I'm not even talking like 20 i think skinamarink would make a great 20 to 30 minute short film because mm. the duration of it is important and there's enough events that you can stretch it out this is like music video visuals if this were in a film such as i don't know don't look now then we'd be mm. like this is great i can't really fathom what the appeal of this is over just picking out a movie from the 1970s, that has the same look and the feel, and actually has other stuff to it, too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this movie very specifically dates itself to 1973, which is the same year that Don't Look Now came out. It's the same year that, even more importantly, The Wicker Man came out. So it's trying to capture the essence and the spirit of those two films, while just not having anything new Mm -hmm. or exciting to say. And that really is a fine line between this and something like Marink for me, because Marink feels like it's genuinely making something new, like forging a new path that hasn't really been explored before. And this just feels like a lazy remix.
1: And in terms of what it's remixing, those two movies, Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man, are really subtextually loaded films about marriage, love, what it's like to lose a child. About Catholicism and about paganism, about the institutional powers of Europe and shit like that. Those are Mm -hmm. like two very heady movies for how sensual they also are and for like how creatively put together they are. So it's a mix of the visual and the audio and like meaning, (laughs) substance. I'm not the type of person to like completely, completely harp on substance, but I think when we look at experimental films. Something that I just found myself thinking about is like Chien Andalou by Louis Buñuel and Salvador Dali, one of the most iconic experimental films ever. It's like 21 minutes long. Does your movie need to be longer than that? <laughs> if we don't have a don't look now to wrap it around like a narrative and characters and themes and everything, yeah. why the fuck do you think you need to be 90?
2: Just running out the clock in the most obnoxious way imaginable.
1: And I think that's mostly because it's the easiest way to distribute it and get people to watch it. But mm-hmm. to me, this felt like a DVD extra. Yeah. Like something that would come on like an Arrow video release of The Wicker Man. Be like, here's this five-minute short film by Mark Jenkins. Inspired by... Bingo. And we'd be like, that's a banger. That's cool.
2: But at this current link, you could feel the audience's patience wearing thin...
1: It was a mix for mine, I would say about a 60-40. Mm-hmm. Texas Theater is really good for movies like this. It's really good for Skin of It's really good for even Megan and Scream 6. It's just like a horror movie kind of audience mm-hmm. there. But it was probably like 40% of people were just like tired of it. Just, I want to get the fuck out of here. And then 60% of them were into it, were interested. Not as full as I thought, but it's been playing for a little while here. Too. Yeah. Did you get to see this with like a fairly good crowd?
2: I mean, it was uh, pretty full because it was like a preview screening before the weekend release. But you could feel that most of us were just not engaged or just tired of it, which had its own fun, honestly. Because by the time you know she's like touching the flower for the 800th time, you all start (laughs) laughing.
1: Yeah, it is just highly, highly repetitive. The other short film I thought of a lot was Meshes of the Afternoon. Mm Mm-hmm which uses that spiraling structure to bring you back through the same scenario a couple of times. 14-minute mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. That's all Maya Darren needed.
2: She didn't need 90.
1: I think the other big new release that both of us saw would be Jafar Panahi's No Bears, mm-hmm. which is his most recent effort. When was the last film that he made and was able to release before this?
2: I think it was Three Faces back in 2018.
1: Yep, that was going to be my guess.
2: And that followed Taxi from 2015. And then, of course, this is not a film from 2011. So he's made a total of four feature-length films while not being technically allowed to make films because uh, he's been under house arrest this entire time by the Iranian government.
1: And almost all of them are about this in some way. They are about the establishment and his attempts to not necessarily like fight them, but resist them, sort of struggle against them to get his films made and no bears is of a kind with all of those. I feel like it's a little reductive to say that this one Iranian filmmaker is similar to another Iranian filmmaker, but I do think that there's a lot of familiar concepts, themes and approach to what we saw with like Abbas Kiarostami mm-hmm. all the way from like his Coker movies, particularly the second and third ones. Yeah. That kind of get you up on that heightened level of reality thinking about a filmmaker talking about a film and layers of all that. No Bears is about a director played by Jafar Panahi called Jafar Panahi, which is a fictionalized version of the director himself, who has been limited to not be able to leave the country of Iran, but who has gone all the way to a border town of Turkey, right? It's on the Turkish Mm -hmm. border. Because across that border he is from Zoom directing a film from afar. Yep. And That film that's being made in Turkey is about two people who are trying to emigrate illegally by any means necessary, getting a passport, getting out of Turkey, trying to go to Paris specifically. Meanwhile, Panahi is in this border town, and there's a second story that is about his experiences with the locals in this place and run-ups with their culture, religious strictness, and all of this naturally for a director, centers around photographs and filmmaking.
2: In particular, he captures one photograph that puts some of the people in the village into a great amount of danger. So the film becomes almost this autocritical commentary about his driving obsession and need to make movies to the point where he's getting other people in danger of being persecuted by their government.
1: On one side of the narrative, we explore that through the two people who are trying to escape in their government, and how the filmmaking process both puts a strain on them, and also fictionalizes what they're going through. How there's this falseness to it, how it's dramatized, and is that dishonesty okay? On the other side of the narrative, we're looking at this village, and the photograph which is taken, and the delicate social balance of this village being interrupted by kind of almost like Antonioni's blow up blow out like Mm -hmm. he didn't really know what he was taking a picture of and then all of a sudden it's at the center of this whirlwind so it's like this complex layered ethical debate about the filmmaking process and film as a medium Mm -hmm. it's really hard to say that this one comes off as anything but critical and cynical of the process and yet Because it chooses to focus on Panahi, it's also sort of like, but we can't stop. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do about that? And what does that
2: mean? He has a driving obsession that he needs to fulfill somehow.
1: And I think we see some interesting consequences of that in this movie. Oh, you do. This is my favorite of the year so far. The topics of today's episode, No Bears and Godland. and Then the topics of the last one that we recorded- John Wick, Pacifiction just like very quickly, boom, 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 top four <laughs> of the year.
2: That last episode was the top two for me currently, and then this one is the free and four spot.
1: We've got the same set of four just rearranged. As I mentioned, Ennis Men, I saw as a double with Godland, and it was kind of a weird outlier because it's the only movie since Friday, Good Friday, that I have watched that has had no relationship with Easter, the holiday, for the life of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I was actually kind of curious if there are any movies that you gravitate to for Easter or for this time of year?
2: The thing about what an Easter movie technically is, for me, it would have to be at least about the events that the holiday is about, and more specifically, you know, what was this guy preaching about and what did he want people to follow by to live better lives with? A real issue for me in that regard is that most of the movies about Christ and his resurrection are really fucking boring. <laughs> like, sure, Ben-Hur is a big old epic, but I would rather watch paint dry.
1: Wow. I've always really enjoyed Ben-Hur and... I
2: fall asleep. After the chariot <laughs> sequence, wake me up when it's over, you know? I think my favorite out of that bunch would be Scorsese's The Last Temptation of the Christ. Yeah. But if you show that to any congregation, they're going to burn you at the stake. <laughs>
1: right. Are there any from the studio era, any of those Bible epics that stands out as your favorite or that you enjoy more than the others?
2: I mean, as a favorite, it's a tough topic mainly because the studio epics of the 50s in particular were made to compete with television. So they were all about being seen on the biggest screen possible and having thousands of extras and gigantic sets and big old heaving stories. But they were all a little and proper and stage-bound. Like, there was a restrictiveness to them that keeps them from being really, really engaging, unfortunately, so there is kind of a barrier there. But in terms of something that has at least kind of a camp energy running through it, it's really not an Easter movie. The only reason people think it is is because it airs on ABC every single year the night before Easter. Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, particularly his 1956 version, yeah, it made a silent version back in the 20s, where the first half of that was the biblical story, and then the second half was set in modern times. Mm. It was a reflection of that story about Interesting. two brothers who were building a cathedral, and one brother discovered that the other was using questionable materials that would collapse.
1: It's like Decalogue.
2: <laughs> yeah, basically. It's proto-Decalogue the eyes of Demel.
1: i really like the ten commandments too i'm probably a little bit more into ben Hur, just for like the chariot race of it all but mm-hmm. you know charlton heston Moses. it's just like a big fucking colorful decadent double dipped delicious bible movie
2: for me it's ann baxter as nefertiri just vamping around
1: there is kind of a weird structural perk where he parts the Red Sea, and there's a lot of movie left.
2: Yeah, it's like, oh, wait, we're going to do the whole thing with a cap? All right. Um, again, wake me up when it's
0: over.
1: Just today, I watched a 1927 Cecil B. DeMille silent epic called The King of Kings, mm-hmm. which is his Passion of the Christ movie. It's silent epic, very close to three hours. All the intertitles are scripture, just about. There's very little Mm -hmm. original writing in the film. And it's, like, big and stately and beautiful. And, yeah, you just kind of want to take a nap. You're like, all right, wake me up when the crucifixion happens. Oh, (laughs) Judas is hanging himself. All right, well, I'm awake.
2: Can you imagine the people whose Easter movie is The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson? Jesus. Sickos.
1: I was just going to say, The Ten Commandments is a Passover film as compared to an Easter film. The two holidays coincide to the point that, like, in the Gospels, during The Passion Story of Christ... One of the details of it is that because Christ's execution is scheduled to happen during Passover, Pontius Pilate offers a stay of execution, and the Pharisees get everybody to vote for this other guy like Barabbas, who's like a murderer, and they let him go free and Jesus gets crucified. So Passover and Easter are a concurrence on the calendar, yeah. which I think accounts for why there's a bit of crossover. And then I think the second part of it is depictions of Jesus— are a little precious mm-hmm. in film. You know, you gotta be careful, you gotta be reverent, yeah. which means you gotta be a little boring. The reason why people don't like The Last Temptation of Christ is because it's a Paul Schrader
0: Jesus <laughs>
1: who's feeble minded and human in a lot of ways, the way that like just doesn't jive with what the Vatican is about. Right. And then I think, two, as The Passion of the Christ shows, it's a brutal fucking story. No matter how your film treats it, mm-hmm. he's gonna be getting whipped. They'll do a piece of wood, they're going to be talking about stoning adulterers, like, it's just a brutal Roman Empire type of movie that needs, like, yeah. Caligula, right? It mm-hmm. needs that kind of edge, but then it's, like, very sanctimonious piety.
2: Needs a little edge of tackiness, I think.
1: You know what, you're not really into this movie either, but, like... <laughs> Life of Brian, uh-huh. Monty Python. Honestly, I think that might be my second favorite after The Last Temptation of Christ. I mean... Just because it's like super slapstick irreverent.
2: I would much rather watch that than any of the Bible epics <laughs> from the 50s. So that's the problem with Easter movies. They're just a little too cut and dry. A little too ceremony, unfortunately. yeah,
1: It's a solemn, stern kind of holiday in my experience. Mm-hmm. And unlike Christmas... There's no secular anything to go along with Easter. There is, in the sense of like the Easter bunny, but that's very children's five-year-old, eight-year-old holiday. There aren't these sort of traditions like you might have around Christmas where you could just have like Christmas trees or a Christmas setting Mm -hmm. and then have a movie about something totally different. Other than going to church, there's not like a lot of festivities or traditions to build an Easter film around.
2: I mean, you could watch like the Peanuts special, but...
1: sure. But even then, like, does anybody remember that over Great Pumpkin or Linus doing the Christmas speech?
2: I mean, that one did play a lot in my house. All the holiday ones did. But the movie that I really watched... The most during this time of year, or at least the one that I associate the most, is another Passover movie, no relation to Easter at all. The <laughs> 1998 animated film, The Prince of Egypt, from mm. DreamWorks when they were in their petty era. <laughs> A little bit of context for anyone who doesn't really know like the origins of DreamWorks. DreamWorks was formed after Jeffrey Katzenberg who at the time was the head of Disney Animation. He wanted to take over as president of Disney following Frank Wells' death in a helicopter crash in 1994. CEO Michael Eisner declined giving him that position. Eventually, Katzenberg was fired from the company. He was so angry with his former employers that he wanted to create a competing animation studio. And their very first film that they put out in 1998 was a movie about talking ants.
0: Mm, yeah.
2: And they did this whole competing thing with Disney for a while. But the second film that they put out was basically their attempt to beat Disney at their own game, taking an extremely old story and giving it an animated musical update. And that ended up being The Prince of Egypt.
1: Things that I mostly remember about this movie. One, the cast (laughs) is insane during this time. The Disney movies were making that pivot off of the Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy of it all but they still usually would have like one or two famous people on the cast. Mm -hmm. This is like that DreamWorks, Shrek, eventually thing where they just like hired every fucking celebrity that they could get their hands on. I think it's like Patrick Stewart, Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes. It's like a lot of people. That's not even close to how many people are in this.
2: The celebrity voice cast is really hit or miss, honestly. Like Patrick Stewart... Helen Mirren, Ray Fiennes as the Egyptian royal family. Great call. Great move. Steve Martin and Martin Short as a pair of Egyptian priests. What the fuck are we doing here?
1: They do a good job of building their stuff around songs. I think you got Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum.
2: Both of whom, hugely distracting.
1: (laughs) Michelle Pfeiffer.
2: Not as distracting.
1: We actually both, you and I, watched movies with Helen Mirren in them (laughs) on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, because I watched The Long Good Friday. Prince of Egypt. The second thing that I remember about it, besides the cast, is this is probably the best Hans Zimmer score in yes, my opinion.
2: You're absolutely right. It's just big, sweeping, and epic, and it works beautifully with the songs. In particular, the opening number might be the best part of an American animated film for the 1990s.
1: Yeah, we discussed this a little bit. I think the opening from Nightmare Before Christmas might have it, but this just has like a great sense of visual style, like big sweeping scale while being pretty brisk like it's not really stodgy and slow and boring Mm -hmm. like the movies that look like that in live action tend to be
2: yeah this is a mere 90 something minutes in comparison to the mills four hour epic
1: to that end i think it would be better if it were a two hour film i do think i think yeah it's not just that it's too brisk and quick that is probably true it's like really truncated, and particularly it's the part of the story where Moses leaves Egypt and becomes a priest and becomes a man, and it just kind of flash forwards you to like him coming back and it does all the plagues as one big set piece. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that all could have been fleshed out more. Like this definitely yeah. could have been a bigger, grander narrative, and I think that that would serve it with the big musical images and everything.:
2: oh, yeah, I mean, it's a great musical number that it's set to.
1: Yeah, for sure
2: but it does rush by a little fast.
1: There's a funny thing in all the Bible movies that I watch where it'll be like talking about the King of Kings. And it's like, here's Judas. and just, You know, and it really lays on Judas thick, And it's like, here's Peter. It really lays Peter on thick, And it's like, here's the other fucking guys. This
0: <laughs> fucking, you know,
1: Simon and Thaddeus. And I think that the Prince of Egypt does that with the plagues. Yeah. Instead of really relishing Plague 1, Plague 2, Plague 3, it just... Yeah gets you all them in kind of one gesture
2: it does allow them a bit of time to really focus on the last plague which i think one of the most undervalued strengths of this movie is the fact that it shows if there is a god he's probably a terrifying unknowable cosmic entity that will destroy (laughs) us all in two seconds what if god was jean jacket You know, because it's the Angel of Death coming and killing all the firstborns, which is played in complete silence as this white mist shooting around the city, snatching souls left and right.
1: So play nice. Exactly. (laughs) I think a lot of these biblical movies, you would say that they really lay on the spectacle and they lay on the grandeur, Mm -hmm. and particularly when you're talking about Christ movies, they're a lot about the miracles, which I think is really innate with the Passover stuff and in the Old Testament. It's a little bit more of like. Mm -hmm. Babel, magic, legend, that big sweep that all those stories have. Something that's interesting about the film that I watched for this holiday is how much it takes all of that and draws it back, 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 back. We've already brought up The Last Temptation of Christ a few times, and I think with Mm -hmm. its very small $7 million 1988 budget and Harvey Keitel Judas, it's way less about convincingly giving you this whole world to explore, and it's way more internal, it's way more personal. And I think that's largely true of Pierre Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew oh, yeah. from 1964, which is shot in the Italian neorealist style. It features almost entirely amateur, non-professional actors, and instead of focusing on the spectacle, it's all about the teaching. As you might expect from Pasolini, Pasolini, gay, Marxist, <laughs> atheist, also the director of one of the fifteen religious films <laughs> that the Vatican gives their seal of approval to, along with Andrei Rublev and Joan of Arc and stuff.
2: And then he went and made Salo, so you know, just the full <laughs> spectrum here.
1: But in line with the way that his movies tend to take a leftist perspective and also come across like academia, even lectures at times. Yeah, one it really follows that title. It is almost entirely textually based on the gospel according to St. Matthew. And it really hones in on all of the parables and lessons and teachings of Christ, even over him healing the blind. And we see the miracles in that movie where he makes the many loaves of bread. The fish. But more importantly, over the course of its two hours and 15 minutes, it'll just be scene after scene after scene, literally editing directly from one lesson to the next lesson to the next lesson to the next lesson. And I think what's so interesting about it is Pasolini makes Jesus a communist pretty openly and directly. And he's, Pasolini is using biblical scripture to basically say Catholics in the modern time in the sixties are just like people back in the biblical times because you guys did not learn your own fucking textbook. So Mm -hmm. let me teach it to you. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty incredible in that regard
2: I mean, frankly, I would call it the most accurate depiction of what the guy probably would have been.
1: The Pope agrees.
2: I mean, the Pope's got a point.
1: (laughs) It's very down-to-earth and human, but it doesn't do that with the same, like, treacly, piety, blasus sweet, like, oh, it's Jesus holding a lamb. It's never like that. He just feels natural and authentic. And in that way, it kind of has this power that it exudes because you see all these people following this guy who's just walking around telling them ideas about collectivism and how we have to, you know, not fill our churches with money laundering thieves, how the powers that be are evil. I don't know. It's just like a very Italian art house, 1960s take on the Bible that happens to very smartly stick to the source material. Yeah.
2: I think if Christians and especially the Christians in power followed the teachings of this movie, we would be in a much better place, frankly.
1: Definitely fits in with the conventions of Italian neorealism, the way that it focuses on the poor and Mm -hmm. the lower classes and their relationship within society. It also brought to mind for me a little bit of that Soviet socialist realism back to like Sergei Eisenstein. Particularly, I think I sent a message to you, like it reminds me of Alexander Nevsky Mm -hmm. and Ivan the Terrible which were two movies that Eisenstein made for the Soviet state. And yeah. it really, of the two, it's quite a bit more like Nevsky in some ways, but I also kind of thought it was like Ivan in the sense that like Pasolini is sticking to the story. Mm-hmm. He's giving you what you want to hear, but then there's this undercurrent to it that's like deeper than just playing the hits the way that like DeMille does in right. Kings, for instance. There's a lot more of a progressive socialist message underneath
2: it all. It actually really explores what all of those teachings truly mean.
1: How they function within the real world, yeah. so that you can watch it and take something away from it into your own life. Which is like what a good minister is supposed to do. Yeah. Just to quickly talk about a couple other things that I saw, very, very quick. One of them is another Pasolini film. If you're familiar with his trilogy of life like The Decameron, or his more a tourist era of the 70s, You might enjoy La Ricotta, uh, like the cheese. It's a short film, which is actually part of an omnibus, which was made with Roberto Rossellini, Jean-Luc Godard, and a fourth guy nobody knows. And La Ricotta is also a tale of the passion. It's a story about a director who is trying to film the crucifixion. The director is played by none other than the American great Orson Welles. (laughs) This is like a farce. Basically, Orson Welles is playing a Fellini type. We're looking at the filming of this crucifixion and all of the goofballs that are trying to make it happen. And how unchrist-like they are. And it's a silly little colorful comedy that you might enjoy if the sanctimoniousness of all the rest of this stuff gets on your nerves. Yeah. And, as with all great Pasolini things, it has a leftist message by the end. <laughs> about a poor man who just wants to eat cheese.
0: <laughs>
1: but is worked to death. I watched The Robe.
0: Ooh. <laughs>
1: Throwing it back to those Bible epics, this is like a movie about a Roman centurion who is there during the death of Christ who then like inherits a robe and it's just like everything wrong with these types of movies.
2: Yeah, that might be the worst of them.
1: It really was just like, of course this got a fucking best picture novel <laughs> in 1953. And then I already mentioned this one, but I did watch The Long Good Friday which is not an Easter movie. But I think for me, I get a little bit, you know, anything that's tradition on Easter, that's an Easter movie. Anything that tangentially relates, you know, it's your call, it's your life, just have fun. But The Long Good Friday is an English gangster movie, which is set during Easter weekend. During Good Friday, Bob Hoskins is playing a mob boss, and everything's falling apart. And it very sneakily is this like movie about the English and Americans and the IRA. And it compares the situation in Ireland and Northern Ireland and England in the 80s with like Vietnam and the US in the 60s and 70s. So very like politically fierce little gangster movie that has some Easter stuff going on. Very fun. Very cool. Definitely recommend it. Young Helen Mirren wearing these like red nylons and high heel shoes. She's just serving.
2: Icon behavior.
1: Now and forever. (laughs) Oh, and then there is one other one. I watched today a short film by Vittorio De Seca. Mm-hmm. The documentarian called Easter in Sicily, which is just like it sounds, it's 10 minutes of Easter celebrations on this little island in Sicily. Somebody that I read a review of was like, Every faith denomination needs their theater kids, and for the Catholics, that's Sicily. And they're just <laughs> having a lot of fun. They do like recreations and everything, and it's just like a very passionate, excited little movie. And then, of course, the big centerpiece is our movie to talk about today. Yeah. The latest from Hilmur Palmson the Icelandic, Danish, French, Swedish co-production, Godland. So you saw this one a little bit before I did. Do you want to take us off and tell us about the film?
2: Yeah, this is a historical drama set in the late 19th century. The film stars Elliot Crosset-Hove as Lucas, a Lutheran priest from Denmark, who's sent to Iceland to oversee the establishment of a new church, only to be greeted by the trials and tribulations of rural life on a harsh island such as Iceland really adapting to the brutal climate and building civilization out of nothing in the middle of nowhere. And In particular, he only speaks Dutch, wait, not Dutch, Danish. Danish. They're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Though he has to have a translator played by the one and only Ingvar Egert yeah. who's kind of like a mainstay of Icelandic cinema. I mean, just in the last couple of years, he was in The Northman, he was in Lamb. So it's all about not only The struggle of reestablishing your religion at a place where there is none, but also not even speaking the same language as these people that you're trying to guide into your religion.
1: The movie begins in Denmark in a church where Lucas is speaking to an elder priest who's talking to him about how bad the weather is in Iceland, preparing him for his trip and everything. And I thought to myself, I've never been to Denmark, but I don't think that the weather's nice there.
2: (laughs) It's got to be really cold.
1: <laughs> like, there's no way that Denmark winters. I've seen drier films. They don't seem like a boisterous, happy people.
2: Well, that's true. All the Scandinavians are very <laughs> sour people.
1: Just to start off, because this episode heavily focuses on faiths and sects, the Lutherans, if we were to compare them to other, you know, so I was just very briefly talking about Eastern Sicily. Those are Roman Catholics. Those are people who know how to fuck to party, right? Yeah. Just, they're down on their little island, going fishing, <laughs> having a parade. Lutheranism, you know, Martin Luther is the 99 thesis nailed to the door, talking about the excesses of the Catholic Church in form. Great. Wonderful. What that yields is a faith of, like, Protestants the way that we probably think of the Puritans here in America. Yeah. Very ascetic. Scandinavian as an adjective literally means what I'm getting at here, where it's just not very emotional, strict, black and white scripture. If we were to talk about what a religious service would be from these people, it's very like he walks up, he has his Bible, and he just starts fucking reading. (laughs) And it's very textual, very dry, very straightforward.
2: Incredibly Um, lifeless.
1: Yeah, that's the best way to put it. (laughs) It was interesting To see that elder priest because he's eating a meal and he just has like all kinds of food on his plate, and they're sitting in this stone room, like bevel and everything, and it's more architecturally complex than anything that would possibly exist in Iceland at the time of this film. Yeah. So, right away, you're getting this lesson about the harshness of this other world from a guy who is well fed inside of a castle who has no fucking idea what he's talking about, (laughs) which I think is a good characterization for how this movie looks at these Danish travelers, Danish missionaries, and you know, the purpose and value of what they're doing. Yeah. The other thing to note for Lucas is that he's a photographer. He takes wet plate photography, mm-hmm. this old wooden box where you gotta use silver all over these plates, and you've got like a big hood that comes off the apparatus to do your development right there on site. Mm-hmm. And this movie starts with an interesting little provocation about a box of photographs that was found that were considered to be first pictures ever taken of Iceland's eastern shore which is quite craggy rocky and mountainous and unforgiving i think that's not true i think that I, title card is bullshit i
2: doubt <laughs> that it's completely accurate but it's a great idea you know what if you found these old photographs and created an entire narrative around what might have and you know keyword might have Happened. Who
1: would end up in those photographs that ended up surviving among the people that this priest knew? What were those people's stories and where did they come from? How did they relate to people? And that's the opening gambit for this movie that takes you far beyond what a photograph can into this whole adventure saga. So we start off on a boat sailing from Denmark across the choppy Atlantic Ocean all the way to Iceland. You get the fucking boat rocking up so high that you just see, like, you know, it goes up and it comes down and it's just the whole ocean Mm -hmm. takes over the frame. This has really gorgeous 35 millimeter cinematography, kind of like a tighter, boxy aspect ratio. Yeah,
2: and matches the frame of what the pictures would have been back then. And another interesting thing to note is that we don't get one title card. We get two. We get the title of the film in both Danish and Icelandic really driving home that division that's going to appear, the language barrier.
1: The division and the confrontation, the fact that it's going to be both. It's not going to be one or the other. Mm -hmm. An interesting note, now I don't speak either of these languages, but I think Godland is a pretty loose translation of either title. I believe the Danish title means like wretched land or ruined land, referring to the volcanic activity, referring to this idea that it's kind of like a black, ashy, nothing really grows there. And I think the Icelandic title translates to rolled land, like rolling pastures or landscapes or something, but it just reflects how they have different languages that emphasize different characteristics. Yeah, And that really is how we are first introduced to conflict, and the journey, because Lucas is trying to learn bits and pieces of Icelandic from a translator who is on the journey with him, who he's like taking this boat ride with.
2: And that's the translator uh, played by Senjarsson. His name is Ragnar?
1: No, so Ragnar is the other guy. I'm oh, talking wait, about, that's right. I think, Carl? No, Carl must be that. Ooh. Yeah, okay, he doesn't have a name. He's just called the translator. He's played by Hilmar Johnson. But he doesn't have any listed name, at least on this page, other than the translator. But the guy with the mustache. And then we do have Sigurdsson, who is playing more of a guide. He's like the one that's helping them to navigate from one part of the island. Because he lives on this part of the island, where they've landed and docked. And is taking them to the far part of the island, basically across the entire thing. He's trying to get them there so that they can get to the settlement and get the church built. Sigurdsson character, Ragnar, is much more hostile towards Lucas and towards just, like, Danish culture in general. He only speaks in Icelandic, and he's very, like, curt and dismissive, and we see their kind of confrontation when Lucas is trying to, like, ride a horse and doing not that great a job of it.
2: Yeah, he doesn't trust them at all. And, you know, frankly, that's justified. Like, I probably hate all the Danish people, too.
1: I'm not intimately familiar with the history of Denmark and Iceland are you more so? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like it's a subjugated place.
2: Not that I know like too much, but it does seem to follow just like the general path of people from Europe going where they don't belong and messing everything up.
1: Kind of interesting to see that happen to another group of white people. Yeah. Because a very significant amount of that's Africa, Australia, here in America with the Native Americans, mm-hmm. or in Canada as well, Native peoples. Yeah,
2: South America.
1: Versus this is like another group of people of European descent who just came over a few hundred years earlier.
2: It's sort of a lateral move of colonialism.
1: But still like a clear act of subjugation. But it's more subtle. You know, It's not necessarily as violent and rough as some of these other places that we're talking about, like with the native peoples of Australia and the Nightingale. It's not quite like that, but it's still destructive. And I think that's the significance of the film is that it's a quieter break but it's still a break which as we've already suggested a lot here starts with that language where he's getting frustrated about the fact there's like 30 icelandic words for rain
2: <laughs> i just doesn't appreciate the subtleties
1: it is just like a wet rainy foggy which i just love i love stuff where you can see like the rain In the puddles, Mm
2: -hmm. the atmosphere of this movie is incredible.
1: Another detail that I found myself thinking about a lot was like when the horses would clop, 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 Mm -hmm. and you'd see like water come up, like splash up out of the grass on their hooves and everything. It's very physical. You feel like your feet are getting wet and like your clothes are getting heavier and damp and just out there in the conditions of it.
2: Yeah, it really makes you feel the nature of the environment, and in a way that did remind me a lot of Eggers, of course, but also. Werner Herzog, Gishe Martel, who have all made these films about colonialism and specifically about how they affect their environment.
1: I'm glad that you said Eggers because it's got a lot of that Northman, The Witch, where it'll be like that symmetrical blocking. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that A24 house style that people will talk about. And I think that this breaks with that a lot. I think it has its own really unique visual style while still having elements like that. There's that dog. There's a few times where the dog's looking into the camera, and it reminds me of that bunny rabbit from The Witch. Mm. Or even the goat, where it'll just be kind of ominous. And what does it mean that Ragnar's dog who has that connection to him is looking at this priest? Mm -hmm. I think in a way, this movie can be broken down into the people, the beasts, and the terrain of Iceland, and how this Danish visitor doesn't respect any of them. He doesn't respect the terrain, he doesn't respect the people, and he doesn't respect the beasts. Yeah.
2: He's a very ignorant person.
1: It's really kind of the reverse of John Smith in, in the New World. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Where John Smith comes over with these ideals and realizes that the native people embody his ideals more than the people that he traveled here with to build the community,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and therefore has this enlightenment moment. This guy's the opposite. Like, if that epiphany were there to be had about how the native people here had this much to teach him about God's splendor and shit like that, he doesn't even have the language for it, because he doesn't know all their words for rain. It 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 really kind of pissed me off for the entire first half, really the entirety of the movie. <laughs> Why the fuck would you plan to travel here and do no research beforehand? Do nothing to learn the language beforehand?
0: <laughs>
2: I mean, that's something that I guess... It's a very accurate depiction of missionaries, I'll say that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think if we took the Jesus of Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew...
2: He would hate this
1: guy. He would fucking hate this guy! He probably
2: hit this guy, like, guy in the head with a rock. Like,
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. Like, He's a bad priest, and part of him being a bad priest is taking no care to learn about the place that you're going, To me, I think the biggest thing that this movie talks about through the character of Lucas, who is not a bad man per se, like he's not wretchedly evil or anything the way that some of the characters like in our last episode about 12 Years a Slave, he's not like that. He's not that malicious or violent necessarily, but he has no humility. He seems to have no limits to his own arrogance. In spite of the fact that he has been transported into a world that will kill him Except for the grace of the people that he's traveling with. yeah,
2: His pride knows no bounds, and I thought that was one of the seven sins or something, (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) For a guy that's so devout, you would think that that would come up.
2: Nobody gave him a note and said, hey, uh, check your book, something, anything.
1: Something that I thought was interesting that you don't learn about until the second half is that Lucas decided to take this trip the hard way and the long way in order to, quote, Meet the people of Iceland and take photographs and like record it. And it's like, yeah, but he has no respect for these things. He has no respect for that journey and he has no respect for any of the people that he encounters when he's yeah. questioned about who he met along the way. He's like, I don't I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. He doesn't even care about the people that he takes pictures of. This is getting into vague-ish spoilers. But there's a woman he takes a photograph of, and he covers her up with this ghastly white foundation, full coverage, ghost white, like clown makeup. And when he's developing the photo right there underneath the curtain, she's looking at it and she's like, you made me look old and stern and like, Ugh. and he's like, oh, you look good. And she's like, I want it to be youthful. And she's looking at the picture and it's like, you made me look dead.
1: There is an interesting note there that maybe even parallels the Lutheranism that we were talking about because this old style of photography takes several seconds to capture the photo, which means that you can't necessarily hold like a big cheesy grin for that whole period of time. So in those old photos, you know, you see like Abe Lincoln or Edgar Allan Poe, and they're like, Mm -hmm. kind of like you would be if you sat for a painting for a really long period of time, you just kind of flat expression, something that's easy to hold. Along the way on his journey, in order to take these photos, I want to emphasize something that I was talking about is just, His whole trek across the island is pointless. It's pride. Like, he only does that for the vanity of taking the trip. Which I only say because if he were a kind of person that was like a wild roughneck, like Meek in the movie Meek's Cutoff, he's like a wilderness guy, Mm -hmm. then you'd be like, okay, cool. He wants to be with the dog and the horses and go traveling across the island before he gets to the town. That makes sense. But he's clearly not that person. Right.
2: He's not Bear Grylls.
1: He's going on this life-threatening journey where there's, like, fucking volcanoes erupting over there, and everything's, like, fucking frozen, and he barely knows how to ride a horse.
2: Oh, my God. I'm not going to lie. I did laugh when he fell off.
1: (laughs) As he goes along, he gets a little bit more comfortable. He and the translator character get kind of close. They're a little buddy-buddy. He's sort of like the one ally that Lucas has. He speaks Danish as part of it. There's this great scene where they're standing under the waterfall, letting the force of the water wash over them. In general, the imagery of this movie does something interesting, where a lot of it is landscape photography. So you will be looking at a very wide horizon or a mountain. Those waterfalls, like I was talking about, there's a part where it's kind of panning down the entire waterfall. So you have like big, big, big imagery. And then for certain other parts of it, it'll be more like, Very extreme close-ups over the grass.
2: You get the majesty of nature and all of the details at the same time.
1: Bigger than you and smaller than you. And it's all in harmony. That's (laughs) something that's really important with how this movie films nature is that it's showing you. there's a harsh landscape, but there's animals everywhere and there's plants everywhere. Life endures.
2: It's a really beautiful place and you have to figure out your place in the circle of life
1: so you have this missionary arrogance of a guy who's going to come bring the faith to everybody Mm -hmm. and i just think that that doesn't even really make sense to me within the context of christianity because if you think that all of the world was created by god then surely you have to humble yourself before those landscapes and to the people and beasts that have adapted to them and let them teach you the ways of that part of the world because like It's a lesson in how the world is bigger than you. It's a lesson in how, like, your little European town isn't the only fucking way that people live. Right. He says it to that woman that he takes the picture of. He's like, you know, you spent your whole childhood on horses. It's like, yeah, so listen to her.
2: Right. The world does not revolve around Denmark.
1: And this priest who isn't even very good.
2: No, he's a complete idiot.
1: I think the movie does a good job of not making him, like, a simpleton Mm -hmm. or, like, a complete buffoon. But I was reminded of Neytiri Avatar when she tells Jake, you're like a baby.
2: (laughs) Making noise, don't know what to do.
1: (laughs) But I think unlike a baby, there's not that innate sense of curiosity and openness Mm -hmm. and learning that is like why you have to take care of a baby so that it can absorb all those things. And it's like you need to make yourself a little bit more like that to learn the things that you need to learn. And instead, the trip basically almost kills the guy.
2: Yeah, he's so dead set in his restrictive, self-punishing ways thanks to his religion that he can't appreciate the beauty around him.
1: This is where the spoilers really start here because the first moment where we really see this guy's horrible arrogance and how destructive it can be is when he gets his translator friend killed. Mm -hmm. What happens is basically they come up across a river and Ragnar, who is guiding them, doing all the work goes across comes back he's taking his boots out shaking out the water very wet film and he's like the river's deeper than i thought it was gonna be i think we need to go back to the pastures for a little bit wait a couple days come back and assess the water because if we can't pass here can't pass anywhere this is the one and only spot and the priest being apparently a wilderness fucking expert on horse riding across rivers is like Mm. no we're going today as if he's, I don't know, like a military general with a gun. <laughs> if I'm Ragnar, I think I just would have pushed him in the mud right there. So like nah, fuck you. <laughs> I think maybe Ragnar expected that Lucas would fall off his horse and drown in the river right then and there. And I think he would have been okay with that.
2: <laughs> I think he would have been absolutely fine. I think everyone else would have been fine with it too.
1: They would have been like, this is a little bit of a wasted trip, but whatever, fuck that guy.
2: hey, <laughs> okay, we got to have some fun.
1: <laughs> we got to hang out with a dog, ride our little horsies have a couple campfires
2: and watch this idiot drown.
1: (laughs) But instead it's his translator friend that takes a tumble. And actually it's not just that the translator takes a tumble because it's not like his own fault. What happens is there are two horses bound together, lugging the cross for the church across the river and they stumble. And that's what causes the translator to stumble. And I just want to circle back around to this idea that again, it hasn't been addressed in the movie yet. This journey is pointless. That cross and every other fucking thing could have simply sailed around the island to where it needed to go. There was no reason for the two horses to have to carry that fucking thing. There's like a point when Ragnar's like, we should distribute the load by sawing the cross in half.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: I mean, they could have even just made the cross where the church is going to be built.
1: They build a whole fucking church, right? Do you need a cross to come from (laughs) Europe for it to be real? It probably does have to be, like, sanctified or some stupid shit like that.
2: Well, just put, like, some holy water in a bottle and carry it or something, like, for God's (laughs) sake.
1: So what we have is this collection of blunders that ends up killing the only other guy that fucking speaks Danish, the only guy that likes you on this trip, the only person he can communicate with or that can teach him anything. And I think that that's kind of part of the tragedy, is that his first and only real emotional connection to this new place is gone. Like, at that point, he should really just turn around and go.
2: Mm -hmm. Go back to Copenhagen.
1: See you later. And instead, he carries on, as I already said, he gets so sick that they have to travel the rest of the journey with him on a cart. Because he's unable to move or ride or travel under his own power.
2: And it gets to the point where they just leave him.
1: This part of the movie where it's the journey, I've already name dropped it and we've already talked about Kelly, but it reminds me of Meek's Cutoff in a pretty considerable way where it's the harshness of the landscape, it's the arduous, long journey that really soaks in the hardships. I think the big difference here is they're on a known path, mm-hmm. but one of the dynamics of Meek's Cutoff is that their party basically captures this Native American. And I think Ragnar's character kind of forms like half Meek, half that Native character, mm-hmm. where you just kind of get his building, simmering animosity towards Lucas ah. all along the way. Even though he's quite faithful to Lucas and is basically the reason that Lucas survives mm-hmm. and makes it to the settlement. And I think the movie's kind of got that distinct structure where the first half is all adventure, which reminds me of Meek's Off. And then the second half is The Frontier. So it becomes more like My Darling Clementine, where you got the unfinished church, and it's more about the settlement of this new place. Kind of some light Western vibes for me for this movie.
2: Yeah, I could definitely see that. A little bit John 40 and The Majesty of Nature and all that.
1: Maybe there's like just a little tinge of a movie that draws a lot of inspiration from My Darling Clementine. There will be blood. Mm -hmm. The new power of the church and He's a little shit weasel. He <laughs> <laughs> comes into confrontation with the locals in two senses. We've got Ragnar, who's the Icelandic locals. And in this new village, we've got Danish characters. We've got other people who have emigrated from Denmark, mm-hmm. particularly a father and his two daughters. We've mentioned the daughter already. Yeah, That's when we meet them. He wakes up in their basement fucking naked sick.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the older daughter opens up the door and is like, oh, you're awake. <laughs> oh, wow. Let me go get my dad.
1: The dad is instantly like, hey, dude, you're going to have to fucking sleep in that guy's barn over there (laughs) because I can't have you in this house with my daughter's. Like, (laughs) hey, I know that you've been asleep for several days, ill, dying and everything, but you should get the fuck out of my house. (laughs) This part of the movie was a little bit trickier for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew what the first part of it was, what it was going to be. And then we got here and it was a little bit strange, but you kind of acclimate to it. What did you think?
2: I thought that the second half did a great job of exploring how destructive lucas and his specific brand of ideology is in a societal setting where the first half focuses on his destruction in an environmental setting because this is when they start building the church putting up that cross that they carried for no goddamn reason <laughs> and putting it all together But then when there's a wedding ceremony, he refuses to officiate it because the church isn't finished yet. And it's just like, why are you here then?
1: To me, this is like where the bad priest shit starts. Because that is so anti-Jesus to me. Mm -hmm. If we look at any of the gospels, the Jewish high priests are constantly trying to get Christ on stuff like healing during the Sabbath. And then he sits there and explains like, look, if your sheep was dying, into a well on the Sabbath, you would save your sheep. So why would I not help my sheep? Mm -hmm. Ideology over compromise and things that work is moronic. That is what your savior thinks. That is why you carried the cross across the wilderness, is in remembrance of these principles that you don't embody at all.
2: The hypocrisy is overwhelming.
1: And that's the vanity. We value the symbol And we value that stupid little fucking frilly collar that the Danish priests wear in all the dryer movies and shit. The symbol and the respect and the gravitas, but we don't give a damn about the principles.
2: Doesn't care about what it all means. They just care about the image, the branding, the capitalism, almost.
1: Meanwhile, the guy building the church is Ragnar. Is like this guy that also got your ass all the way over here. There's this really interesting scene at dinner. Where you've got the patriarch of that house who's really trying to stir it up and make conversation. Lucas is fucking like dead fish. You just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you got his two daughters, and then Ragnar's there like basically being the brunt of the jokes. Like they're making fun of him and everything. Like they're just not treating him well at all. Mm. And during that moment, the dad tries to get Lucas to wake the fuck up by saying a prayer, which is like one, the most whispered, bullshitty, our father, who art in heaven type of fucking shit. There's like, no
0: passion <laughs> to it at all.
1: And then he makes a point to mention the father and the two daughters, Anna and Ida, and just completely does not mention Ragnar, who saved his life.
2: Which is like, wow, how rude can you get?
1: Like, he's sitting across the table from you. It's actually a great editing moment where they use that narrow aspect ratio because you, you're, you're shot counter-shotting to all different members of the table you don't even know Ragnar's there for several minutes of that dinner scene until it cuts to him mm-hmm. and you're like oh he's just been sitting here got it <laughs> no one cares about him yeah. and it's it's really tragic it's like a really sad thing and I think it's kind of important that you have uh I don't know if star is the right word but like the biggest name and the most like as you opened up the conversation by saying like a mainstay of Icelandic cinema, and is playing this character who's just kind of like sidelined. Fuck you. <laughs> Even though he's like the most competent, you know, like really should be like the leader of whatever this community is. I here. mean, he's he the, doesn't live here.
2: He, I mean, he's the guy who should be commanding the most respect in the room.
1: At, everywhere he goes in this place, we should be, you know, looking to him for guidance and uh, advice and companionship at all times.
2: Yeah. But instead, it's like, hey, let's focus on Father Fucko over here.
1: Well, and when I think about, I'm going back to just his list of sins as a bad priest. To me, the worst one that connects again kind of back to the beginning is that what the fuck good is a priest with no bedside manner who has no warmth or joie de vivre or like anything that you might, you know, like if you were in despair, if you needed the guidance of a priest in your life, spiritual healing, Mm -hmm. and you went to this guy? What's he going to give you? Like, I don't care what scripture he knows. His demeanor is so cold and moved and so disinterested in ever being generous or inviting. Like, he's the guest in somebody else's home and he's like, "Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh Like, you're in a foreign country being received by hosts who collectively have saved your life, maybe like a tiny bit of of like friendship or like camaraderie would would be good from a priest a
2: little bit of gratitude i mean my god
1: taking it back to jesus all those disciples are basically the first church they're the first priests they're the fishers of men how can you be a fisher of men if you can't talk to anybody if you can't connect with anybody Mm Which is that language barrier for one, but then once the language barrier is removed, he's still just kind of a stiff, awkward guy.
2: He just, he doesn't get
1: it. There's a part where Ragnar openly and honestly asks him, how can I be a man of God? And he just kind of sloughs it off. He just kind of gives him a bunch of bullshit answers that don't mean anything. Yeah
2: as a film, this is very, very damning of that kind of religious austerity.
1: I was a little bit surprised because it didn't seem to be very much of a faith movie. Mm. I think it almost instantly asserts like, no, this is just a man in a robe. Yeah, He might believe in God and pray to God and uphold the scriptures in some ways, but as we've thoroughly talked about, he does not embody the values of Christ. He does not follow the commandments of Moses. He's not Like a good Christian in those senses. He's not very pious. So it's really just kind of the ceremony that he stands on, which is the entire reason that he's here. I think that's an important message because if it weren't for the ceremony to stand on, Mm -hmm. he would not be in this fucking country. Uh uh. (laughs) He'd be in Denmark. Yeah. A man is dead in the river because you want to stand on ceremony for things that you don't really seem to believe.
2: Yeah. It kind of reminded me of silence. In that way?
1: Silence is much more interested in those characters' relationship with faith and apostasy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think this is more cut and dry. Like The one moment where this guy prays, where you really see it, he's in his tent and he's praying to go home. Yeah, He's in the tent and the wind is whipping so hard it blows his candle out even while it's in the tent. <laughs> and the one thing that he's praying for is to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I think with silence, it's the clash of these very established cultures of the Jesuit priests versus the Japanese Buddhists and their shogunate government. And so there's this like clash of ideals that will not bend. Yeah. It's like a samurai sword fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is about what will your principles do when we take them on a boat across the ocean, drag them over the mountains, push them onto the glacier, see what they do in the river, And do they get worn down by the elements? And I think the answer is, like, almost instantly, yes. Mm -hmm. He just crumples like a fucking bag of chips.
2: He can't take the pressure of this completely different landscape.
1: He can't even take the pressure of the boat.
2: Mm -hmm. He's weak. Pathetic.
1: One of the things that that second half really illustrates and illuminates is, like, even once he gets the steady ground of civilization underneath his feet, he's still inept. He still doesn't really know what the fuck he's doing which we see when we get to the point when the church is finally completed, and he's about to have his first sermon, Mm -hmm. and he gets, I don't know, one minute into it, and then bails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God.
1: Of course, it's not entirely just because he's a bad priest that he bails. He's got a dog barking at him from outside. There's a little baby crying in that scene. Very, like after such a serene movie it's like a very violent set of noises but that dog's barking and it's like the telltale heart
2: the dog calls him out on his bullshit directly
1: the priest starts developing a relationship with that elder daughter and she's trying to teach him how to ride horses and just acclimate in the same way that he was trying to learn with the translator on his trip over just get used to everything Calm down, find your footing. And he ends up in an incident where the horse gets away from him. And we see this image, it's actually one of the more striking images of the movie, Mm -hmm. of this horse dead in grass from above. Yeah. We see another echo of that later, but we see kind of like a time lapse Mm -hmm. of the horse decomposing. It's this really powerful image of death. Yeah. And that leads to a confrontation. Between Lucas and Ragnar, because Ragnar wants a photograph of himself before he goes back home.
2: Yep, And Ragnar admits to the fact that, yeah, he can speak Danish, and he's done all these things, including leaving Lucas to die when the party abandoned him. It was his idea, and he even killed his horse. And so he asks Luca for prayer, for his questionable behavior. And instead, Lucas snaps, they get into a fight, and he ends up beating Ragnar's skull against a rock, kills him, and lets him bleed out
1: that first part of the confrontation first it's just lucas is kind of just being an asshole to him mm-hmm. he apparently is out of silver which means that he can't take a photograph but presumably it would not be hard to get his hands on some i don't think yeah and he's just rude there's this back and forth with him and ragnar about the language barrier where ragnar will yap 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 at him in icelandic and lucas will just be like dude i don't understand you what are you saying what are you saying but in that scene in the same way that we've Realize that Ragnar can speak Danish and understand him. Lucas understands perfectly well what this dude is asking him and what he wants from him. And he's really obstinate just because of that language barrier. He uses it as an excuse to be rude to him and to look down on him and consider him stupid. Mm -hmm. Even though this guy didn't come to fucking Denmark not knowing how to speak Danish.
2: It's this moment of shocking violence that just breaks everything.
1: And you really take that time. We have all the different landscape shots and that scene where Ragnar's talking about pray for me. You're slowly, slowly pushing in and zooming in and getting tighter and tighter and tighter while he's delivering this monologue. So you're getting very intimate, very close, just before that violence happens, and it just has the maximum amount of impact. Mass gasps in my audience when just crack.
2: It's, oh my god, I can hear it still. Fantastically shocking moment.
1: All those images of water, we see the blood coming out, pooling into that liquid and running in between the cracks of the rocks. Yeah, gross. Lucas is so fucked up about it, he just breaks up his camera, leaves it there, and then comes back. And then that's, you know, the dog is outside barking. And I think during that sermon, Lucas has this moment of clarity, like, I can't fucking be a priest to these people. (laughs) For once, he finally found a sin, another commandment, thou shalt not kill, mm-hmm. broke it, and was like, all right, I think I finally can admit that I'm no kind of priest, that I don't have any business being here, and then rides away.
2: Yeah, he panics and takes one of the horses and flees, and the father to the two daughters. Um, you see, the important detail we forgot is that when Lucas came back from killing Ragnar, he had sex with the older daughter.
0: Oh, what a,
1: that moment. Okay, so the daughters kind of got an interesting thing where, like the mother in The Witch... She remembers her life back in Denmark before they immigrated to Iceland. Mm-hmm. She wants to go back to Europe in the same way that he doesn't really like it. It's one of the best quotes in the movie where he says it's a terribly beautiful country and she's like, "Yeah, it is terrible and beautiful."
0: <laughs>
1: For her, that sexual encounter is liberating and emotionally gratifying and so it's playing with both ends of your emotions because from her perspective it's good and then from his perspective it's like he just committed a murder Mm -hmm. (laughs) and is probably going to abandon the town and is probably not gonna stick around and be this woman's husband and also her father actually says like don't get involved with him she's just like don't yeah, do not fuck with this guy
2: and he was right very very right and he
1: bails. the image of him with the mud on his face looking at the dog Mm -hmm. to me is one of the key shots of the movie because he's in his fine adornments as a priest covered in mud. Just <laughs> absolute fucking. Like, he looks like a clown. Yeah.
2: And he's completely spooked because the dogs just called him out on his bullshit
1: in front of everybody and he couldn't really take it. So now the town is kind of like, what the fuck is up with this guy? There's a couple great reaction shots of people in the church that are just like, what the fuck is this?
2: I love when the younger daughter is like, should I play something on the piano? And the older is <laughs> <it's> like, no. <laughs> don't. And the key thing to note here is that after Lucas gets on the horse and rides away into the wilderness, the father, Earl, follows him. And despite his older daughter pleading not to hurt him, he stabs Lucas to death. And it's like, oh, everyone's just going to assume, oops, you fell off the horse.
1: The way that the dialogue is written there, I really like. It's like, I'm sorry, Lucas, you must have fallen off your horse. Stab. (laughs) Again, it's another one of those fractured because from the perspective of the father, he's just looking out for his daughter and like getting rid of this guy that he thinks is a bad influence. But from the perspective of Lucas, it's like, comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Like, you just did this. This is what you get.
2: This is what you deserve.
1: You reap what you sow. Your entire behavior is led up to this point. Like I literally thought before the father took action, I was like, you know, they hang horse thieves. Mm-hmm. Talking about Westerns. That's good enough reason for him to just shoot your ass in most parts of the world. He stole my horse. Fucked my daughter. I don't think the dad knows that, but so there we get that echoed image of the horse because we see the horse's corpse and we see Lucas's corpse and it sits out there for a winter just having snow and the ice, whoosh, and the wind and everything decomposes. That's another little haunting image of death that also circles back to another theme of like, who saw Ragnar's body? I'm sure his dog eventually, but like, who came across that corpse? Mm -hmm. And the reason that seems like such a key theme is because it's about the photographs. Who does the photographer choose to capture in their portrait of the world? And when we're removed as we are in the 21st century, how can we critique the perspectives of the people who are Mm -hmm. our lenses into history that maybe didn't think it was so important to photograph the Icelandic characters, even though they were the natives?
2: The photographer's choice of who gets memorialized forever and who doesn't. And it ends on this really... Maybe my favorite personal moment of the entire film, besides like that time lapse, is when the younger daughter in the spring finds the skeleton. And, you know, because she didn't really know too much about the guy or what he really was like. So she's upset and sad, and she's tearfully telling him, you're going to be a part of nature now. And by him, I mean, she's talking to the skeleton.
1: Right. It's already happened. Yeah, She's like, you're going to be in the grass and flowers. It's like, yeah, whatever there was to be in those things Mm -hmm. already is. Or has blown away in the winds. Because in this place, he's just as likely to be part of the volcano.
2: Yeah. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust.
1: That grass is going to burn when the lava flows over it.
2: And then the grass is going to grow out again.
1: The whole cycle will be so much bigger than you. Again, it just kind of comes back to like humility and pride.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly.
1: I think for all of Ragnar's justified anger, he says it himself I'm not an animal. I'm not going to resort to violence because he is humble and he knows his place in the world. He's probably been taught by force in ways that he didn't like, mm-hmm. but it has given him a sense of humility that these colonialists just do not have. Yeah. They think that they're entitled to just come over here and have everything they want, be comfortable and be happy. And It takes a lot more to adjust to an environment like this than just showing up.
2: You can't just stop around demanding what you want.
1: Powerful film. Was really glad that I got to see it in theaters because I came like this fucking close to pirating it.
2: I tragically missed this one in theaters because this played a couple of months ago. I just like completely missed it.
1: We have a friend that got to see this in IMAX and I'm insanely jealous <laughs> of that because I bet that was gorgeous. Oh my
2: God. What does an IMAX please?
1: <laughs> I actually brought up Avatar. When we talked about those, you were like, those movies are going to take on new value in the coming generations and decades as the world maybe gets a little more polluted as this escape into Pandora. And I think movies like this are just like that as well, because we just get to see the serene beauty of nature. It looks untouched, but I mean, of course, it was made in the 2020s. It's like, that's our Earth. That's our Pandora. It's not just gorgeous, but it feels purposeful, especially with these themes of arrogance and human folly.
2: Mm, 100%.
1: So, yeah, I think our next conversation is going to end up being about Kelly Reichardt. I wonder if there's anything else that we'll have to look forward to. I mean,
2: I'm sure we'll be talking about the new Astro film at some point.
1: Is that coming out soon? Yeah, it
2: comes out next weekend for New York and Los Angeles. And then it goes nationwide the week after, I think.
1: I'm tired of your fucking coastal privilege, but it's fine. Yeah. We'll hold it down for middle America.
2: I'm going to rub it in further. We get it in IMAX.
1: Uh, actually, you know what? I think we're getting Bo's afraid in IMAX as well. Myself. Nice. We'll see if that holds with you know Mario smashing records like green turtle shells. But yeah, no, I'm really glad that we got to do this and talk yeah. about some good Bible movies, questionable Bible movies, and topics of faith and everything. Good way to celebrate the holiday. Yeah,
2: and I didn't catch on fire, so there's that.
1: We didn't have to have an extinguisher on standby or anything. made <laughs> it. So yeah, we look forward to talking about showing up. And of course, we've got some upcoming conversations we've already mentioned about the Czechoslovak New Wave, the first one of which will be on Daisies, which should be dropping a little bit later in April after this episode and after the Reichardt episode. So look forward to those conversations in the future. That's it for this one. So we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, everybody, for listening.
2: Bye, everybody. Happy Easter. Happy Ramadan. Happy Passover. Happy everything.
1: Woo! Happy holidays. (laughs) Talk to you on the next one.
0: Bye! Bye!